Shalom Aleichem, welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Josh Lambert. Josh is Sophia Moses Robinson, Associate Professor of Jewish Studies and English, and the Director of the Jewish Studies Program at Wellesley College. He's the author of Unclean Lips, Obscenity, Jews, and American Culture, and the recently released The Literary Mafia, Jews, Publishing, and Postwar American Literature. Welcome, Josh. Oh, thanks so much. It's always great to talk to you, Lisa. And 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 full disclosure, in light of your book, um, Josh and I were colleagues once. He served as the first academic director at the Yiddish Book Center for ten years, and he currently serves on the center's board. So, right. disclosure. Exactly. So we right we have to disclose that stuff because it's a book about how how much it's important that like we all know each other and we can work together. <laughs> But beyond that, there's no nepotism. No. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I really, really wanted to have you on, Josh, because I, I, the book is so good. We're going to talk today about the literary mafia, Jews publishing and post-war American literature. And um, I'd kind of like to start off maybe asking you to talk a little bit about the title and how that you know came to be and also what set you in the direction of this book. Yeah, and look, like that I'm self-conscious about the title because really, right, the first thing you you find if you open up the book and the inside flap is that there is no literary mafia, right? There's no such thing really. Um there's no there there isn't uh any kind of um collusive, planned out strategic group like working together to do criminal or unfair things. That that's just not that's not true. But the reason that ends up to be the title of the book is that a lot of people in American publishing felt like there was something fishy going on. They felt like there was something um, uncomfortable and they complained about it. And actually, I think that as much as many of those people were expressing sort of anti-Semitic ideas or were confused or, or, or just, you know, um, griping about something, I think that there's a whole really interesting conversation to have about who gets to make decisions in the culture industries like who get you know who gets to choose what gets published or not and i think often even american lit scholars like my colleagues who are english professors don't talk about like the history of of why some things got chosen and other things didn't and who got to make those decisions so you know the the, the title's there to draw you in to be frank but also to to sort of center this idea of of how do we talk about who has power and 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 what would be fair in the culture industries? So I have so many questions for you related to that. And I guess the let, let's try for the first one, which is, you know, I have a background in publishing, so it was interesting to read all of this. Thank you very much. Um, you know, do you see that this, you know, look, yeah, I, it's funny to call it a literary mafia because it wasn't like an organized crime circuit. It was an evolution. Um, I think it's safe to say that, that, you know, knowing about the roots of Yiddish literature before modern Jewish, you know, modern Jewish literature, Jews had an outsized role in publishing. Um, publishing in Yiddish was a global and, you know, empire, not an empire, but um, endeavor. Um, some of the sales I find for, you know, Yiddish books were just totally amazing. Um, so there's a history of Jews in publishing. There's also a history in publishing, I think, of, um, you know, before, you know, recent takeovers of publishing by um, 
other kinds of corporate entities, each publishing house had a really strong figure at the at the helm. And the books that they published were very representative of that editor's personality, whatever. Um, so how do you see this evolution with the Jewish publishing houses? In response is a very long-winded question, sorry. Um, you know, do you think that it's a reaction to being cast out by a non-Jewish literary scene, which was really strong in America? Yeah, so, so I think, right, I think it might be helpful to just, you know, put some of the history out there, which might be familiar to people, but I think some of it is, um, it is, it is confusing, right? So a few things we can say. In the 19th century, in the 1880s, 1890s, um, if you were a young Jewish man, uh, we could talk about what happens with women later, but if you were a young Jewish man and you came from a sort of middle or upper, upper class family and you went to a good college, which is possible, it's, you know, there was lots of anti-Semitism in American culture at the time, um, you might be really interested in literature and want a job in publishing and you would have found the doors closed to you, right? The, the idea that you as a Jewish person in 1905, 1910, wanted to be an English professor, wanted to be an editor at a publishing house, the the protestants who were running those businesses would have just said like no it's not it's not for you it's not the right thing for you to do and that exclusion was pretty widespread such that like when alfred knopf gets a job at doubleday it's a big deal it's a it's a breakthrough um that happens you know a pretty early in the 20th century and then what we see is that a lot of these um particularly young jewish men and occasionally a few uh jewish women um start founding their own companies because they don't want to like fight with that anti-Semitic exclusion. And that's how we get companies like Random House and Simon and & Schuster and um, Ferris Strauss and & Giroux and uh, Viking, uh, some of like the most important and most prestigious American publishing houses come from um, well-off, like fairly wealthy and well-educated young Jewish people who like loved literature, cared about it, wanted to be involved in this world and um, knew that there was going to be some exclusion if they tried to sort of go to the old the older companies and they were massively successful and to the point that random house which was started by two jewish guys is now you know by leaps and bounds the largest publishing house in america and 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 by some measures in the world um so so that's part of the history that jews sort of saw and and, and similar things happened like in the field of of English literature where Jews were excluded and then and then joined the field and helped to sort of develop it into like a really exciting and and um, you know extraordinary field. Um, and so that that history sort of changed over the course of the 20th century. Um, you're right to say that that part of the prehistory of that is that in the 19th century, when Jews couldn't get a job in American publishing, they were start they already had publishing houses in Yiddish. Um, they were, you know, prominent in publishing houses in Europe, like even in Polish language publishing houses, or you know, other, or Russian publishing. Um, Jews, Jews had worked in those fields, so that that's one way of thinking about like why was it that Jews were able to be so successful when they joined American publishing? And you know, one of the details I always like to talk about in this is that you know, Knopf is still famous as like the most prestigious American publisher. When Alfred Knopf and his wife Blanche started their publishing house in 1915, their first list was almost exclusively translations from Russian and Polish. 
And you think to yourself, like, if you were starting a publishing house today and you wanted to make a lot of money, would you do only like translations from Eastern European literature? Well, maybe this year you would. Maybe, maybe that would be a good plan. But, you know, part, of the, part <laughs> yes. of the reason they, they were able to do that is that they had connections, right? They had family members who could speak Russian and Polish. They, they knew about that literature. They were connected. So, you know, that's, that's part of the story. Um, and what we see in the 20th century, right, is that as Jews start to become influential in this business, there's a, there's a sense of, of um, other Americans, of, of Protestant Americans, Catholic Americans, you know, other Americans looking at Jews' success and saying like, wait, what's going on here? Why are Jews suddenly so influential in this business that they used to be excluded from? So that's part of where you get that sort of discourse about a literary mafia from. You know, I, I think also of the world of Cheever, Updike, um, James, the Algonquin Club and stuff like that. Again, how do you or do you find that there's any parallel here um, that a publishing house is, you know, seeking out those writers who are telling a story that in some way relates to their their world? Right. That, that's the sort of question that I had to start to answer, which I think is part of the hardest thing, right? Like, I think you're, you, you yourself, you're an editor, you work as an editor. And if someone asked you to articulate how you make your decisions, you know, how do you really, how does it, when it really comes down to it and you have three manuscripts in front of you and you know, you have the budget to only publish one, how do you choose which one, which one is the right one, right? Some of it is going to, I mean, you, I, I'm interested for you to say, but, you know, I think like when you, when you talk to editors, um, they'll say that there are some rules they can apply to it or some principles they can apply, but a lot of it comes down to instinct to some sort of like feeling you have. It, does, does that make sense? Does that seem right to you? Yeah, I mean, a, 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 a story well told is a story well told. Um, and yeah, you're, you know, you sit down, you even acknowledge this in the book, one of the editors saying, you know, I read it in one, you know, in one sitting. That's usually to me an indication that, wow, this is, you know, somebody else is going to want to read this. No, absolutely. Right. So you, and I think like what you, what you find when I found, when I talked to editors is they say the same thing, right? They say, I can't really, you know, I, I can't really say that there's a rule. It's just I sit down with something and it touches me, it connects with me in some way. Um, and because of that, right, a lot of people who work in publishing, a lot of the people who judge literary prizes use language that they just say like, I just picked the best book or I, you know, wh what we should do is just like celebrate excellent books. And of course, you know, in some sense that's true, but I think as a scholar, what I'm able to do is, is zoom out and try to look at patterns. and actually cultural sociologists spend a lot of time doing this, right? Interviewing not just one or two editors, but hundreds of them and looking for the patterns in their behaviors. And what I was looking for in this book is what difference does it make if a Jewish person gets to be the editor at Knopf or at Random House, or if a non-Jewish person is doing it? And the answer, of course, is that like, there's no, there's no absolutely, um, sort of inevitable pattern. Like, of course not, because anyone who's met three Jewish people knows that they don't agree about a lot of stuff and they are going to have very different tastes depending on their generation and their age and their gender, their sexuality, their, you know, their, the history of their experiences, like who they are, all, like a million different things are going to factor into their tastes. But, but even though what we want to insist on that, right, there's no one Jewish taste. What I found pretty consistently is that when you looked at a Jewish editor 
who had a role like that at a publishing house, they would have Jewish stories that they cared about. So, you know, one of the um, characters that I focus on in the book, who I find really, really interesting is this guy, Harold Strauss, who was an editor-in-chief at Knopf for about 20 years from, you know, the 30s to the 60s. And he was a fascinating guy who really um, did a lot for uh, particularly the translation of Yiddish literature into English. So he was um, really enthusiastic about the publication of like I.J. Singer's books. And, um, you know, uh, he was uh, he was there when Knopf did the first uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer book. And there was all sorts of, you know, ways in which he helped the translation of Yiddish literature. But what fascinates me is that he was absolutely uninterested in American Jewish stories. Like he didn't he didn't seem to care at all about stories of immigrant life on the Lower East Side or, you know, striving and struggling with assimilation in America. That stuff like didn't interest him at all. He wanted Jewish stories that he could position as like Tolstoy, like Thomas Mann, right? Like European classics, these grand um, uh, multi-generational European novels, right? That's what interested him. And that's totally different than what would interest, you know, an editor like Robert Gottlieb at Simon & Schuster, you know, 10 or 15 years later, right? So it's, I think it's important. What I find in the book is that it's important to pay attention to who gets to make the decisions, but you can't sort of jump from the fact that someone was Jewish to any particular conclusion about what they were going to like. Yeah, I, I find that thread really interesting, and it comes out in your book. You talk generationally about these different houses, and um, you know, again, you talk about the kids who took over those houses, and I think that there's an aspect of a lot of the writers um, who explore their otherness, for lack of a better word, in terms of their Jewish experience. And so, from a generation that is trying to assimilate and not identify to a uh, you know, the next generation who's trying to be that bridge, Grace Paley, Bella Roth, you know, it's it's fascinating. And then you go into the women who were dealing with other issues, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And so, again, do you kind of make that connection in terms of um, a publishing house with whoever, you know, the editor is reading this and thinking, Oh, you know, this is really interesting to me because it it's allowing me to wrestle personally with, with things that I might not question and and how these houses become representative of a generation. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's so many pieces of it. I mean, I could only do so much in the book. Like there, there are a lot of pieces that I found fascinating and there's there's so much more. But like one, you know, one piece of that, like that generational piece that is totally fascinating. It's like two sentences in the book is. Um, about Athenaeum, which was the publishing house that the, the son of the Knopfs founded uh, with some other people in the late 50s, early 60s, and was for, you know, a little while there, like a really powerhouse, fascinating uh, publishing house. And one of the things I found, which, you know, just totally shocked me, was that that particular publishing house, which had so much to prove and, you know, was sort of, there was such a spotlight on it, it was a pioneer in the publishing of Hebrew literature and translation, right? It was basically the first American major publishing house to really publish a lot of um, Israeli or Hebrew language literature for a, a large American audience. 
And that's so bizarre and, and surprising when you think about like, who, who were these guys that decided that this is what they wanted to do to publish like the first book of Yoram Kaniuk and Ephraim Kishon and like these different like Israeli writers. So I think that often the, what you find when you look at the individuals, it like actually isn't what you would expect to find or isn't what um, you would you would go looking for. Um, but I, I think that the the pleasure of the book for me or working on it was getting into the archives and just spending the time to say like, okay, what were these different publishing houses doing, you know, in the in these particular moments or, or particularly transitional moments. So yeah, I really had a good time like trying to put together um, uh, what I could of the sources to really learn about like how publishers made decisions and and how we we came to get the literature we we got because you know in so many cases we know like and I think when you've worked editorially you know about all the stuff that gets cut all the stuff that we that no one ever gets to see because it didn't quite work or an editor didn't feel like it was compelling and I think that um, you know that's that's such a big story of the culture we do have is 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 how we you know how the decisions got made. You know, there there were also points in it which um, hit home with me. Um, I was early early in my career um, around a table of uh, um, talking, and the the publishers pounded the table and said, "Feeling good about this venture?" You know, there are a lot of Jews sitting around this table. Why is it you think that everybody thought, "Okay, Jews bring so much to the table in terms of publishing"? And and again, in this instance, it was everything from the creative to the business side of things. You know, it's it's an amazing thing because once Jews start to succeed in the industry, you get these myths that take over and that inform people's thinking about it. So one of the pieces that I found that just, you know, astonished me, and I'm sure you've probably heard this too, um, as far back as the, as the 50s and 60s, people say, make these pronouncements about Jews buying like most of the books in America. There's an article in Publishers Weekly, which, you know, as, as you and I know, is, is basically like the Bible of the publishing industry, where someone says, speculates that Jews buy something like 70% of all hardcover books in America. And when I read that, I like sat down with a napkin to try to do the math. When you know how many books are sold in America and how many Jews there are, like it's such an absurd idea because if Jews bought 70% of all the hardcover books in America, it would mean that like each individual Jewish person would have to buy like four or 5,000 books a year. So, you know, I know a lot of Jews who buy a lot of books, but I still don't think that that figure makes any sense. Um, but it's, you know, it's that kind of myth that once you see Jews are, are really succeeding and, and thriving in this industry that I, I, I've heard stories like that from so many people from, both Jewish people in publishing and non-Jewish people in publishing, that there's a sort of comfort and assumption that Jews are central in this industry. And sometimes it comes out in, you know, somewhat like borderline anti-Semitic ways that make people feel uncomfortable. And sometimes it's really, um, you know, jocular and supportive and, you know, like uh, sort of enthusiastic about the fact that, you know, Jews have done so much to support not just Jewish writing in America, but, you know, um, innovation in the industry, um, and and also like helping to highlight the voices of other groups, you know, that might not have gotten heard if it weren't for the commitments of Jewish editors. And you have a, a chapter, a section um, about women in publishing. And I thought it was really interesting that um, there's that history of using initials 
so that whoever's reading your manuscript isn't aware whether you're a woman, you're, you know, you could change your name, whatever. Um, I wonder if you speak a little bit about that in terms of how much being a chameleon um, was a way of dodging all of these preconceived notions of who you were as a writer. Yeah, I, you know, I think as I worked on the book, I wanted to really think about what happened in terms of women's roles in publishing, because that's all obviously a huge transformation too, right? In 1930, in 1940, if a woman could get a job in publishing, she could get a secretarial job and maybe have the slightest, faintest hope that she could ever get to read a manuscript and do some editorial work. And then if you look at the demographic figures today, um, women comprise something like 75 to 85% of all the people in publishing. And that's a huge transformation of an industry, right? Like it's really um, incredible. And I think like there's much more work to be done on the history of that transformation. And there's so many figures who I, you know, just mentioned in passing in this book who I think really deserve, you know, further study. Um, but when you look at that transformation, I was looking for um, memoirs and novels that women wrote about what it was like in those years when in the 50s, even up to the 50s, maybe it changed by the 60s, still the way that a woman was likely to enter publishing was to first get a secretarial job and then sort of impress people enough that she could move up into the higher ranks. And obviously that's not a fair or <laughs> useful system for um, hiring, but I was curious like how um, the people who experienced that would feel about it and what the experience was like. And what I found is these different novels, some of which were very successful, some of which were sort of like more neglected, um, suggested like some of the experiences. And the thing you're pointing out, right, is that um, for lots of women in those situations, what they wanted most of all was not to have their gender used against them. They didn't want to be placed in a situation where because they were a woman, they could only edit certain kinds of books, right, which is something that that people did, right? They said, oh, you're a woman, you can only edit in this category or only have this kind of job. And the other like very specific thing I found, which is really um, uh, maybe, maybe familiar to some people who were alive at that time, but like I think from a contemporary perspective just seems like bizarre, is women who were like writing for magazines or newspapers or, or publishing books and they would be referred to by their husband's name, like as, you know, Midge Dector for years and years and years uh, would complain about being called Mrs. Norman Pithoritz. And they would fight about like, is it really fair for you to use my husband's, you know, what you think of my husband to like apply to my work and to, to condition me. So, so like what women wanted, right, was, was freedom. And that thing you point out um, where you see it with someone like T Trudy Gertler publishing under the, her first initial T was, was to say like, I don't want the first thing people to think about when they see my name on the cover of a book is my gender. I want to sort of have the freedom from that. Um, at the same time, you know, I think that uh, the par part of what is really important and interesting about um, how women entered the biz business and like got a little bit more of positions of power in it is that women worked together and saw each other as allies and had to like share information about where was a safe place to work? Who was a, a boss who would treat you fairly and who was a boss who would harass you? Where could you get uh, you know, a fair hearing? And they developed what we now call whisper networks. And they often um, tried to share that information 
in way in in clever ways you know through fiction through uh what you call a romana clay like the 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 sort of uh, a sort of tricky novel that could like give a sense of what it was like to really work for this company without actually using the names or 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 telling people so what i get interested in in that chapter is 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 really like how women started to work against a system that was like set up to exclude them in all sorts of different ways and um you know and the truth is uh, as much as that's changed, right? There's still a lot of that going on now. That's that's fairly relevant. The what we've seen in the last few years is how important it is for women to have like a whisper network where they can share information about who might be like a a, a dangerous or or um, unpleasant person to work with. And I think that um, you know I, I I particularly love you know going back to Rona Jaffe's The Best of Everything, which is you know it's just such a fabulous novel that was a bestseller at the time and then sort of hasn't been taken that seriously since then but really gives you like an incredibly clear picture of what it was like to enter publishing in the 50s and face all of this stuff well um one of the things i loved about working with you josh was um you launched great jewish books program which included the high school program and and other things like the book club and it deals with Yiddish literature um, and it deals with modern Jewish literature, you know, English language um, works. And so interesting to see how you bring these stories into this conversation in a number of different ways um, and the research that you do. So I, I you know, I, I saw that present um, in the book and it's always been one of the fascinating, you know, and um, great privileges and guilty pleasures of working with you and reading your work is that you allow the reader to learn about this and then to draw their own conclusions, um, which is a really nice way of putting it out there. Um, the archival research in this book I found fascinating. Some of the little anecdotal stuff is just absolutely, you know, you didn't want to devour it. It's, it's so good. Um, so I guess the question I'd end with is, in terms of setting out to write this book, where you started and where you ended, um, was it what you imagined? Um, yeah, I think, you know, in a, in, a, in a way, right, like writing an academic book like this really over the course of something like 10 years, obviously it does, um, it does change a lot. Um, I, I think that the you know part of what i where i ended up that did surprise me a bit because i don't think i started out with this idea was how the experience of jews in publishing is relevant to people today right because on some level it's a historical artifact it's just a thing that happened and mostly it happened you know sort of out of historical you know contingencies like little coincidences it just happened that certain people were in the right place at the right time and that's how we got you know, um, Jews having such a role in American publishing, let's say in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But I do think there's a lot of relevance of this story to, to people today, to the decisions they make. And, and, and what, I, what I started to feel was, um, and, the, and some of this came out of, you know, the work that I was doing at the center, talking to writers, talking to editors, talking to other people about what's going on in publishing now. Um, anyone who's follow, following like the story of American publishing, who, who, who reads the New York Times articles about it, knows that publishing has been really struggling to include more diverse voices, right? We know that from demographic studies that publishing is about 80% female, and it's also about 80% white. 
And in a country as diverse as the one we live in, where publishing is not just another industry, but it's the it's the place where like people get a sense of like the possibilities of their lives and and you know helps them to like figure out who they want to be. There's a really, really important argument that like we need publishing to represent diverse voices. And yet I think people sometimes struggle with um, how to get there or uh, what what it would look like or what it would feel like to have real diversity in the publishing industry. And the the way that this history sort of informed me, it, my thinking about this and changed my thinking about it is that, you know, you might start from a place of saying that the best way to diversify an industry is to just be open to everyone and sort of not penalize anyone for their backgrounds, not, you know, have any racist exclusion, but just let everyone in and try to like work towards like a as as diverse a group as you can get. And I think that's like reasonable to say that. But often what that means in practice is that people don't want people from a minority group to work together as a center of power in, in an industry. Right. And that's what the accusations of a Jewish literary mafia were really about. They were saying, like, we don't like the way that Jews are helping each other, giving each other like a leg up or supporting each other. And I think that the the conclusion I came to and people might disagree with this is that it's profoundly important that we like remove racist barriers and like don't exclude people because of like where they come from or, or what their identities are. But the other the flip side of that, I think, is that people really need to have support from other people like them. So we need a publishing industry in which African-American editors have a whole group of supports and contacts and other people who share some of their experience and perspective who can be their rivals also, but like their their comrades, like who can help them and, and help them like build up, um, you know, supports of power. Like I always think about, you know, Toni Morrison who famously got a job at Random House in the in the late 60s and early 70s and did so much for African-American women's publishing, but was really the only black woman editor in the entire business of thousands and thousands of people who worked in publishing. She was like the only person doing that. And that's an incredible amount of pressure to put on one person. And no Jewish editor would ever want that, right? No Jewish editor ever wants to be responsible for like, all the Jews, right? For every, for like every Jewish story and for every Jewish opinion, that's too much to place on anyone. What you really need is a situation in which you have lots of people um, who can work together and sometimes work against each other, sometimes compete, sometimes collaborate and, um, and have a sense of power. And what I, you know, what I try to point out in the book is that we'll probably like what we can hope to get to is a place where you can look out at the world of American publishing, just like you can look out now and see Jews in all sorts of prominent positions, editing like major magazines, being the editor in chief of many publishing houses. And hopefully soon, within a few years, we'll be able to look out and see that all those roles are occupied by people from other groups, right? Like it would not be a problem because Jews are such, remember, such like a tiny group in America. There are like almost as many Vietnamese Americans as there are American Jews. And like, I think most people would find it strange if the editor of every major publishing house and every major magazine and like a third of all the professors at most of the English departments were Vietnamese American, but actually it wouldn't be that weird 
because Jews have already like done that and it didn't it didn't cause a problem and it didn't mean they were colluding. So I think like we can we we should hope to see just way more empowerment of minority groups who haven't had a voice before in like a, a sort of dominant influential voice in American culture. We should be looking for that and hoping to see it happen. And we should not be afraid when it happens and feel like, oh, is that like a Vietnamese American literary mafia? Should we worry about those people working together too much? Like, no, it's really, it's really not gonna be um, a threat to us if a group of people gain more power than they had in the past. It just, it just, it, I don't see how like that would really be a problem. It's, it's so, so true. I mean, the universal experience is something that I've learned through reading a lot of Jewish literature. Um, we, we launched the um, reading groups for public library program and it features what three books in translation about a topic say uh, coming to America. And then one about the community and where the where the library is, and you realize that this is, these are not unique experiences. So, you know, going back to the analogy of the table, you need a lot of people around that table to find that um, that voice that yeah speaks to a lot of other people and readers. Um, really interesting, Josh. Um, and for our listeners, the book, the Literary Mafia, Jews. Publishing and post-war American literature, available everywhere where fine books are found, including shop.yiddishbookcenter.org. And you use the word academic, and I would just encourage our listeners. Um, it's yeah, it's a really really well-researched scholarly book, but it's a great read, and it really gives you insights into what publishing is all about and how the books come to you in a lot of ways. Um, thanks. And if I can put in a plug. I'll say it's the first of my books that's been made into an audiobook. So uh, those who are like me, always in the car, listening to podcasts, listening to audiobooks, that might be a really uh, easy way to uh, to check out what what I, all the research that I found there. Great, um, and uh, we look forward to your next book, and hope to see you here soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.